Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 126 with my guest, therapist Susan Hagen. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of... All the battles in our head. <laughs> a little dramatic, little dramatic reading there. An hour or two about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. It's also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And um, yeah, go to the website, check it out. You can take surveys. You can join the forum. You can read blogs by me and other people. Um, you can support the show financially. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, today's uh, show is a little on the long side, so I'm going to uh, get right into it and read a uh, little section of an email I got from a listener named Julian, because I think this is uh, great for anybody in the New York area. Um, if you are, you might want to grab a pen if you're looking for uh, low fee therapy or free therapy. Julian writes, I want to recommend uh, anyone with not a lot of money in the New York City area to check out the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. I might need to go to therapy just for how long that name is. Uh, again, it's the Columbia, Columbia University Center for psychoanalytic training and research. Uh, Julian writes, I went through a lot of trial and error trying to find a free slash low-cost therapist in New York. These guys take the cake. It's absolutely free. You're promptly placed with the therapist. Medication is covered and available on-site at the pharmacy. Well, it doesn't sound like it gets any better than that. So thank you, uh, Julian, for giving us the heads up on that. And those of I've mentioned this before, but those of you um, that don't live in large uh, metropolitan areas, or actually even those who do as well, Google uh, Lofi Therapy and the name of your town or city, and then you can find places um, usually that work on a sliding scale. And you can also dial 
211 from a landline, and that'll connect you to local services. All right. Um, this is from the Happy Moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Jess. She writes, I suffer from depression, but I am lucky enough to experience a glimpse of sheer joy and unconditional love just about every day for a few brief moments. I have an, uh, a 65-pound coon hound mutt dog, and every night before I go to bed, he jumps into the bed and lays down. I rub one or both of his ears and sink my face into the fat of his neck, and he sighs. Boy, does he sigh. No matter how shitty I'm feeling, no matter how much I may want to drive into a tree, this guy only cares about one thing right there and then, and that's me, his ear, and our combined whining breathing. And the best part? The part that sends rays of hope shooting through my cold, dead heart? When I pull my face away, he nudges my chin with his snout until I resume for another minute before he jumps down and goes to sleep on the couch. That minute moment where another living being with no judgments, no ulterior motives, and no expectations just wants to love and feel loved by me. That is the moment of pure joy. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> That is very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Susan Hagen, who was referred to me by a listener. You're a um, therapist in the state of Massachusetts. Psychotherapist. Yeah. Psychotherapist. You got your master's degree in... Mental health counseling. Mental health counseling. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we were just talking before we started recording. You're originally from... Minnesota. Mm -hmm. I hear it. And, you can yeah, hear it. You'll yeah. hear it a little bit more, I think, because yeah. I was just home. So I think I picked it up again. And uh, what, what was... What was the environment like that you, that you grew up in? So I grew up on a farm in northern Minnesota. The name of the town is Fertile. <laughs> it's about 600 people. Actually, it's growing a little bit now because um, they're seeing some really good economy there. So the town mm -hmm. is kind of growing. But I grew up there, and I was raised by a farmer. Actually, my dad is a beekeeper and a hybrid sunflower producer. Everybody is still there. I still go back home twice a year. I think probably I'll go back home more often because my parents are getting older. But I fly into Fargo, North Dakota when I go home and um, still go right back there and feel like, why wasn't I a farmer? Yeah? <laughs> yeah. What, it's like your first occupation or something. You know, in formative years, you kind of mm -hmm. go back to that. Yeah. Uh, what What is it about farming that has that allure? The simplicity, the focus, the work? What? Probably because of my program background, I'd say it's because of the isolation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think that um, there's so many things to it. You really... There's such a community feeling there. Your neighbors are really your resources. I mean, you 
definitely invest in other people a lot of the year. And I, when I go home, I really see that. I really feel that deeper connection with people, maybe out of necessity, but also just because, you know, I mean, I spend nights when I'm at home, it's just playing cards, mm-hmm. putting together puzzles. It's just home. That's great. Yeah. So you you shared with me that you've been um, sober. My sobriety date is September second, nineteen ninety nine. And how do you feel? Congratulations, by Thanks. the way. Yeah. How do you feel that having been through that helps you to be a therapist? Oh gosh. Well, in di- different levels, it helps me to be a therapist. I think I am a non-traditional therapist because of that work that I do, continually do in my support groups. I think that I probably um, disclose more of myself to clients. I think that oftentimes I have a real good sense when they really need to hear that I've been in their shoes or that it gets better or that there's something more here we need to look at. Any any piece of that to be really authentic with my clients. I have a, a real trust that they're on a journey and they're on a path and they were brought to me and I really feel that their sort of recovery, I guess, from whatever it is that they're bringing into me is is part of our path together as I'm such an equal with them. At the same time, I'm also their guide. So I feel really fortunate in that way. I think there's a gratitude, too, that comes from my sobriety that is just probably the thing that keeps me more and more positive, I guess. Yeah, you know, I always say that if you haven't really experienced the dark, it's hard to fully appreciate the light. Yep. Yep. Um, it's interesting. The more therapists that I interview and talk to, the more I realize that it's kind of a personal thing how much they choose to disclose of themselves. Some like don't want to disclose anything about their personal lives, and others um, seem to not be afraid to do it, but there always seems to be a... Tra- definitely a judicious sense of how much to reveal yourself because i i have actually had read in some of the surveys where people had a bad experience with the therapist because they talked about themselves too much mm-hmm. and i would imagine that would be yep. a, a tremendous turnoff and something yep. you have to kind yes. of be aware of yeah have I you ever caught really yourself important. talking about yourself too much yes i have and um i think it's my humor that starts down that road because i'll um find myself seeing something comical, not about the issues that we're talking about, but something happened, some sports issue or something like that. And I think, you know, I have a license plate that says um, New England Patriots champions, and they see that and they see where, you know, my office doesn't have any pictures of any family members or anything like that. But, you know, there's personality there. There's, you know, things come up. But I also, I also had a therapist who was the therapist that taught me the model eventually. I did that work 14 years ago. And that work, the therapist, and I will say her name, Amanda Curtin, um, who is the founder of this model that I use, who's just an amazing, amazing person, genius and inspired. But I would say that she taught me the boundaries. And she also taught me how what to disclose. I had so many questions about relationships, um, some of the the model that she uses about triggers and 
uh, you know, feeling like I hated my partner and how could I hate my partner and love my partner at the same time? So I'd ask her, do you feel the same way? Do you, do you go through this? And she would, she would say, say, you can, you know, I'd first say, can I ask you these questions? And she would say, you can ask me anything you want. And she would have this really gracious way of telling me something that didn't make me all of a sudden worry about her mm-hmm. or didn't make me feel like I needed to um, monitor what I said or change what it was that I was going to reveal to her. She was brilliant and still is. She's still a therapist in Cambridge. And I just think that her modeling for me really taught me how to be professional, how to really, especially with sexual abuse survivors, to really be careful of the boundaries. Mm-hmm. So I know that that is, that's really kind of sticks in my head where, when I'm talking to somebody. But there's definitely a humor piece to me that makes my client feel comfortable. And also they've come back with me and said, oh, I didn't really want to hear you say that. Or And that's really great that they're open enough to tell me. Mm-hmm. One, I have a um, next to my office, in my big office, I have a rage room. And sometimes when a client is hesitant to get to their anger, they kind of get stuck in sadness because anger is so unacceptable to their family system that I sometimes would have to show them how to be angry. So with this, we have this huge bag, um, like a boxing bag Mm -hmm. that we put in the room, and it's soundproof, carpeted. It's very, like, it's not a violent-looking room. It's very soft. It looks like a sound room like this, actually. I have all those all over my room. And um, sometimes they're so hesitant to pick up the bat and start wailing at the bag that I'll say, you know what, I can do that for you. So I grab the bat and I'll hit. Mm -hmm. And then I look at them and I say, how do you feel about watching your therapist take a bat and hit the bag? And sometimes I will have clients who really break down, didn't like to see it, didn't didn't like that at all. And then we stop. But most of the time I'll have them just watch like their inner child. I do inner children, child work. Their inner children will, what I, what I tell them to do is remind your inner child that nobody's getting hurt here, that this is actually an appropriate way to get out our anger. So what I'll do is I'll take the bat and I'll hit the bag and sometimes I'll say, okay, now I'm going to swear. <laughs> I hit the bag and I swear and God damn it, son of a bitch or something like that. And somehow they'll break through and go, give me that bat. And mm-hmm. then they'll start, ra- they'll just start wailing away on the bat, on the bag. And um, it's, it's not that they're hitting the person that they're 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 really putting the anger on the right person but the bag is doesn't represent the person the bag we really talk about that the bag is a way it's a channel to get this anger mm-hmm. out instead of putting it on the the people around you in the present when you're dumping all this anger out on everybody else but the anger really belongs to a certain pe- a certain group of people or two people or one person so we really kind of take them and you know get them to do that. And eventually I'll have people say, I'm, I'm just getting out of work, Susan. Can I come by and hit the bag? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, right on. That's great. You know, just like some, they started to know that this is going to come out on my spouse if I don't get this out somehow. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really big part of the model that I use is, it's not a big part. It's, there's equal, there's a lot of pieces to this that I really want to share with you. But the, the the getting at the, the through the sadness, getting at that anger, and really showing that inner child that it's okay to be angry because ultimately that inner child is watching you to see if it's going to be okay to be angry. Is this an okay feeling? Mm-hmm. And then you demonstrate it and really reassure him or her that 
it's okay. Nobody's getting hurt. This is the appropriate way. So it's really an amazing process. What is the name of the model? Does it have a name? It doesn't really have a name. Um, we call it a reparenting or grief group. I explain it as adults who see that their past experiences in childhood are still affecting them negatively today. And that's a long kind of way of, that's you know, it's kind of, I've asked Amanda, name it, you know, say, give it a name. And um, I don't know, I think it's... I kind of love that she hasn't named it because yeah, there's something, yeah. I don't know, uh, that always puts me off a little bit like when somebody mm-hmm. comes out with a book that here's my yeah. system for this. Yeah. It, it almost seems like it's excluding stuff that has come before it. And like, it seems very proprietary. And I think mental health and recovery and all that kind of stuff is so multifaceted yeah. to claim to be able to put it in a single box. It's such a shot in the dark, Paul. I mean, yeah. it's like it really is. I mean, I can tell you what I do and how I believe in it, and I get so motivated to talk about it. But the truth is, it's like, well, I don't really know how this works. But if we kind of feel our way in the dark and we sort of, this seems to go better than that or Mm -hmm. in this case, whereas something else will work completely differently for another client. So it's the the model that I use is it's based on group work. We do... um, Groups can be various sizes, but it's usually four men and four women, and they're all adults, of course. It's a key party. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, gosh, yeah. That's, no. <laughs> how, how counterproductive would that be? <laughs> Just be no. I'm so afraid that people are going to think that I think I'm an expert, and I think that's one of those things that I like to throw in there to, A, to sometimes bring a little levity to it, but... B to to kind of say don't don't start taking me too seriously. You know, I'm not a I'm not a professional. I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes <laughs> who yeah has been through a lot of shit in his lifetime, but the bottom line is I just like talking to people and I'm fascinated by people's past and their presence and how they're dealing with their shit. So that's that's kind of like where I'm where I'm coming from. So that isn't Richard Martin. Oh, guy. you've seen Richard Martin. <laughs> I love him. Yeah. that That's my picket sign. That you doing... can tell how people vote by the way they dress. <laughs> you really can in a lot of ways. That's it's... so funny. Yeah. You you, you really can. Uh, that's or at least Richard he Martin, thinks by they... the way. That's not me. Yeah. <laughs> but the, he, yeah, he, he believes that. But getting back to... Uh, He's great, though, I have to say. Oh, thank you. you For those of you that person. don't know, Richard Martin is a satirical character that, that I perform sometimes and um he's a very very uh right wing um kind of intolerant guy that has a lot of issues that he can't see and kind of takes it out on the less fortunate um but getting back to um what we were talking about so talk more about uh the model so you do inner child work and is there like a specific uh, and you do group of four on four on four people. They put their keys in the bowl. Uh, they wear something comfortable. One of them eases their pants off. You put on some smooth jazz, and everybody goes at it. Oh, it's not too late for you to back out. I am really wondering. It is not too late for you to back out. I need to reassure my clients something right here. <laughs> we can, by the way, we group. can take your name out and call you something else <laughs> if you'd be more comfortable doing this anonymously. And I'm, I, and I'm totally serious. 
We can mm. we can take your no. Okay, all right. No, I always like to give I people really that trust. option so that they feel more free to speak openly. I don't want to destroy <laughs> your career and your your credibility. Yeah. Um, so you get a, a group. It's generally four men, four women. The group varies. The I mean, it, it, it just depends. When I'm screening people to do group, it's just a f- gut feeling. I do it, you know, like, okay, this one, these people would work together really well, and the majority of them need to start, and so we go forward. And some people drop out. Usually there's a couple of people who drop out, um, and that's fine. That's Did they fine. say why? They're uncomfortable? Oh, just all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes it's because when I was in the group, when I did the group with Amanda, Two people dropped out. One of them dropped out because he couldn't get his addiction under control. Um, and the in the group, you really need to have your sobriety under control and sobriety in you know a lot of different areas. And what, the group what was, actually, his, what was his addiction? It was um, a sex addiction, but um, it was so self damaging. And I do know that self that sexual abuse is damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually those people can stay in group and they really work on like a tw- we put them on a 28 day program. We really worked on work on some behavior stuff, although I feel like the model doesn't really focus on behavior as much as it really focuses on the damage caused by that formative those formative years and then how, kind of how it comes out in the present and using the present as windows to the past, those triggers and going back and really seeing it freeze frame that the, the group is is a laboratory, really, to be able to freeze. Capture those moments yes, and examine them. Yes, capture the moments and use them as windows and really go in to that, those places in the past that really, that those feelings, those that unfinished business with mom and dad or the unfinished business with your caretakers. It's... It must be terrifying for some of those people to get vulnerable in that, in that environment at first. Well, what happens is, is the group is a three-year commitment. Two and a half year, three year commitment, depending upon the size, and so you have to gradually build trust amongst the group. So it, the first phase of it is to do a genogram, and so each group we meet every week. It's an hour and a half group, and each member has one whole night to tell everybody what the dynamics of the family were, beginning with grandparents, and then parents, and then and then the client and the, the siblings. And really talk about the dysfunction, who was a resource, who was uh, an alcoholic, who was a workaholic. You know, and you can you know put teachers in there if there's anybody outside who saw you, who really could see you, and um, those people who helped you, those people who didn't help you, those people who abused you, those kinds of things. All that's on the genogram, and so that's that first initial introduction to each other in our past. And I'm don't, I don't I don't include me, I'm the leader, but mm-hmm. um, each person in the group does a genogram. And as we go along, we start to see those, you know, the stuff that comes out of those genograms and those um, family dynamics that were explained. Sometimes people know right away that my family was dysfunctional. And sometimes people come in and they say, I had the greatest family. Look at this. Mm-hmm. Mom, everybody looked clean. And, mm-hmm. and as you start scratching the surface, then you start seeing, oh. It's, hmm. I'm constantly amazed at the degree to which the brain will bury stuff to tell you that everything was okay in the past. It's, 
Because I could look at other people and go, can't you see? But I couldn't see that in my own life right. a- until yeah. I was you know, almost 50 years old. Two years ago, right? Yeah. A year, a year ago. Mm-hmm. A year ago. A little over a year ago. Yeah, I but, actually listened to that interview that you had with Lin Chen. I listened to the beginning mm-hmm. of it again the second time. And wow. took that took that as if it were a survey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought I would really love to talk to you about some of that stuff. Not to be a therapist, but just to really scratch it. Lo- hey, it has to do with me. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I just think you articulated it, the pain of what came out of it so well that, it's, you know, it's opportunity. That's, you know, that stuff is there, right there. It's on the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny. I just happened to have met with her again yesterday because uh, I find her really easy to to talk to. There's a lot of people that I find easy to to talk to, um, but maybe because she's a sex abuse survivor, and she uh, was just so easy to to talk to uh, about it. But I went over to do her podcast yesterday, and after we stopped taping. Um, we were talking about, you know, stuff from, from my past and this kind of epiphany hit me that I don't have any shame about the stuff that happened to me anymore. I used to because I blamed myself. And then I got to this place where I could see that the blame wasn't on me. I was a kid. Um, and even the acting out that I did as a kid, in reaction to it, I could see, oh, I didn't do that because I was a dirty little kid. I did that because I had feelings that were overwhelming. But now the shame has shifted to how I feel when I talk about it with certain women who kind of fill fill that compassion role that I wanted my mom to have. And I sometimes begin to become sexually triggered and kind of turned on. And then I go to a place of, you're you're being manipulative, you're being um, disingenuous, you're being... But there's also a catharsis in feeling that compassion and acceptance from them. And so I talked to her about that yesterday and said, it's weird that my shame has now shifted to this. And so I'm talking about that now in the hopes that that will release my shame from how my body responds when I talk about it. What what are your thoughts on that? Is that normal for for somebody to to have that? Yes, that's absolutely normal. What from what I know about your past, I I think that um, what he that little boy, and of course mm. I go to the inner child because he's the one that's actually reacting. He's the one that's looking for the mom the 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 mom that'll finally be a mom. And so when he sees somebody or hears somebody who identifies and really has that open heart, of course there's a reaching out. I want her. That makes so much sense. And because of the sexual confusion, that makes absolute sense. You were set up for that. That was absolutely a setup. And so that reaction that you have, that being able to articulate it, but that visceral reaction where there she is, is actually what you want to then start to do as reparenting that little boy. You actually want to start talking to him about that reaction because that shame, shame is a fear of disconnection, basically. And so that shame that comes up 
is you want to start talking to him about, I totally understand why you feel this way. I'm here for you now. I'm the one that keeps you safe. And you've talked a little bit about that. You really understand that concept of the, the adult parent and reparenting him mm-hmm. and really coming in there for him and making sure that he knows that that should not have happened and really being angry that that happened and showing him that anger is the right reaction for him, not at mom. Mom is gone. Mm-hmm. The mom that's today is is a totally different. She she re, she triggers you back there because she's still the same. You know she's she's got so many. She's similar, mm-hmm. right? But she's not the same person. And so that is where you want to go is really focusing on giving that little boy his day in court is really what you want to do is you actually walk through that saying absolutely that feeling you were set up for that reaction in the present but we need to go to the past and really talk about what happened and awareness isn't enough you actually have to go back and you have to change the experiences and that is i believe through a lot of it's like a gestalt kind of therapy but you really have to actively work on and i'm you probably are doing that with your therapist you you bring in the chair you, the empty chair you put a picture of in your case would be your, your mom put a picture of your mom in the chair and start talking to her and then have a group of people or have your therapist start talking to her too and really being a witness for you and saying that was wrong what you did to this little boy he deserves so much more and really get at those emotions and charge that thing with emotion so that you can start shifting, getting at a deeper shift. We're not looking for a behavior change. We're looking at cause. We're not looking at symptom. Mm. We're looking at the cause of this stuff and getting in there. And you, our learning takes place when there's a strong emotion to hook to it. Awareness isn't enough. We mm. know that. You can have people who are aware all day long of what they do and their coping mechanisms and and how they do this because of this that happened in the past doesn't change anything. Yeah, I think the mistake a lot, and I completely agree, and because I have felt progress from processing it in support groups Mm -hmm. and therapy and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I think a mistake a lot of people make, I see so many surveys of people that think that they're broken and they think that going back into the past is just to make the person who abused them feel bad. No. And I and I say, we don't do it to make our parents suffer. We do it so we can process the feelings we've been running from so we can stop suffering. Right. Uh, exactly. But, but it's so confusing because the emotions that come up when you're processing it and you have connections to people, you get these conflicting emotions that come up where it's cathartic but also triggering at the same time and you're so used to always blaming yourself and saying my bo- my body is bad my body is wrong i'm inherently dirty that's the first place you go to because you're afraid that you're you're doing something wrong i'm so afraid that i'm not then i'm not doing it right that i'm just re-traumatizing myself by talking about it with somebody that brings up complicated feelings in me. Is that is that the case? Am I Wait, re-traumatizing this is, myself? This is what I understand the the stage that you're in as far as what I've heard you talk about in, in the, the bits and pieces that I've heard is that you're actually in a transition period of giving letting go of the old belief system that your mother put in place in that house. And 
That is Herculean to do. It's not impossible. You have to do it with another person. This is you can't heal in isolation. We know that. We know that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right? So it to 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 leave a belief system that that was so, that was part of your survival. It had to be your survival, right? Who had the power? My you mom. didn't have the power, no. right? When we're you don't you can't get in a car and drive away when you're a kid, right? Right. It changes everything. When you have one person who has the power and a kid in it. So there's a belief system there that's totally based on survival. That makes it even deeper. So that you are now moving through a transition of letting go of that belief system. And you have to replace a new belief system. But the confusion that happens from that inner child's point of view what the heck's going on? If I don't have this belief system, what do I have? I have you? It was the most painful when I let go of that, when I suddenly saw my mom for who she was oh. and let go of that. I untethered is the only word that I can think of. I, I said, I right. feel like an astronaut that has been, that lifeline to the spaceship has been clipped and I'm floating without any sense of where anything is, where what, I don't know what's right. up, what's down, what's left, what's right. Do I trust myself? Am I full of shit? It, it, where is the truth? And I wanted to die. I literally wanted to die. It felt like somebody took a bulldozer and just carved mm. out my chest. Mm. And it was it was the most pain and confusion I've ever felt. And it lasted months. Mm. And, and there's, still, there's still some stuff in there. It's much, much smaller than it was. But I'm still confused in, in many ways as to am I doing this right? Right. I would imagine that's pretty pretty common oh, for people. Oh, yes, it's common. And what I reassure you, and all as I do with my clients, is you're going through a grieving process. You are grieving the loss of a normal childhood, which is, I think, the biggest loss in someone's life. To realize how it should have been is, it's just, you can't, it's just a lot of work. It takes time. It takes understanding of your partner. It takes uh, people to call where you could say, what am I doing this for? Why is am I doing this for? Why am I not drinking? Why am I not getting high? This is so painful. Is it true? Is it worth it? And just going to people who, sometimes I have clients put things in their pockets and say, oh, that's right. This is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm doing this. Because when you start going through that confusion where you don't have any, when you're not, when you're not tethered to anything, well, it's probably the thing that you've been avoiding all your life, right? I mean, that is the, I mean, you're going into the pain. I remember shoving the thought down at, at seven oh. years old or eight years oh. old and yeah. and thinking, this doesn't feel right. That I, It feels like she's using me and then thinking a mom would never do that. Right. A mom would right. never do that. Right. Right. And that's where you stop listening to your inner cues. You either you had a choice, and that was the only choice you had because she had the power. You have a dysfunctional belief system that you're living in, and it's wacko. And you have this gut that's telling you that this is wrong. Who are you going to believe? Who's got the power? So you end up having to have to repress it and shove it down and keep it down there. So that you don't, so that when you do finally let go of that belief system, that those inner cues have been kind of like, well, they're there, 
but you have to relearn how to listen to them. So you have to make mistakes and take chances, and you have to get out there and really risk. You have to mm. risk making mistakes. Sometimes I have clients who are perfectionists, and we do a 28-day program of making mistakes. Every day they call me with five mistakes that they're celebrating. It's, it's, it's like that, where you know, just getting at, I can make mistakes and they're mine and they're beautiful and that's how I learn. But these inner children, they're terrified. It's also terrifying too when your mistakes are um, around sex, when it has to do with sex and your sexuality. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's few things as shaming to me as feeling like I crossed a line in talking about a subject to somebody that I might have been inappropriate or I might have put too much out there or been, you know, too revealing. I mean, it. I feel it in my body, like just like my face is flush of, oh, you're sick. You know, you're you're you you repulse other other people. And intellectually, I know that's not the case. But when that feeling comes up in my body and I experience that sometimes when I'm in the middle of talking with somebody who who I feel very safe with and it's it's like I'm drawn to that conversation like a magnet like here's some compassion here's somebody that has that that look on their face there's a couple of things here one of them is the feeling that comes up and the other is talking too much about it that feeling of shame what did I do that for cuz the feeling you're getting you're it's almost like you're you're not getting triggered, but you're opening up to this possibility of, is is that person going to do what I've always needed? And so there's a little boy that's that wants to, like, get that going because yeah, I, I mean, need the healing. Like the hug after I talk about that mm -hmm. with somebody is, I want it to last forever. Uh -huh. It feels so... Right. Good, and it's not a sexual hug. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking like, oh, you know, this is what it would feel right. like to have sex with this person. It's not that at all. It's it. It feels that feels very non-sexual to me. That feels very just like I feel like I'm 11 years old, right? And I guess I I feel a little bit ashamed because mm -hmm. like what grown man wants to feel like he's 11 years old again. Right. The The shame that you feel is a familiar, it's the familiar, right? Oh, I, should, I shouldn't feel this way. But everybody else kind of colluded with it. So it was wrong. And angry at your mother, that's the piece. But when you're in the present and you're having this reaction to somebody in the present, it isn't, it's so much about having that dialogue with him and really reparenting him so that the shame isn't there and that you actually s get the comfort from you. So do I stop the conversation with the person when I feel that feeling and then go off by myself and say, it's okay, you felt no, that? No, actually, what I think is it's not that you're doing this with 15 different people, right? Oh, I've t I've talked about it with a lot of a lot of people over the past, you know, in support groups, well, men, women. Right. But I only feel it with certain women. Uh-huh.
but also the catharsis or the feeling of feeling validated, especially from women that are moms, mm -hmm. is it's just so it I feel it so deeply. Right. And I think it's so much to do with somebody is finally seeing me. Somebody's finally seeing me. And you weren't seen. And that is healing to have somebody see you, your partner or somebody who really understands what it is that you're saying. Mm -hmm. So to be seen for this kid and for you is huge. And it is healing. To be seen is – to be given that attention in order to see – to be seen is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's it's healing. Well, that, that that's but, one of the – go ahead. Finish. But there is an adult piece to this. And that is the adult needs to step in and f kind of guide this inner child. You don't want to be run by your inner child. You really want, not because of out exterior, I mean, there are some cues that we have from the outside that we really need to follow. And that is okay. But when mm -hmm. you have people who are open to you and want to listen, then that's a gift. Okay. So, and I totally understand about the reparenting thing, and that's one of the things that, I, that I'm working on. I'm protecting myself from people that are toxic to me. Um, I'm, I did this a, a couple of weeks ago. I pulled out a picture of myself when I was that age that it happened, and I talked to it, and I broke down, and I started crying. And I told him, you know, you didn't, you didn't deserve that. You're a good boy. And I could see what an innocent little kid I was, and it made me so sad that 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 kid was exploited. Um, so, uh, oh. so do I? Do I? I know I don't have the conversations with the people in place of that. Right. That I still need to be doing right. the the reparenting. Mm -hmm. But I, what I guess I'm I'm asking is, is it counterproductive for me to ha still have those? moments of wanting to be felt and seen and heard despite the fact that it sometimes brings up confusing feelings in me. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It only the, took me a half hour to the ask piece that question. Of, the piece of shame that comes up, though, is a window. You want to take that as an opportunity to really work on. And I'm not saying that what, what I use with the group is throughout the whole three years, two and a half, three years, Everybody has to be dialoguing with their inner child. And dialoguing is this amazing tool to get at that unconscious repressed stuff. And so what dialoguing is, is the adult is the dominant hand and the inner child is the non-dominant hand. So let's say if you're right-handed, when you talk to this child, you write with your right hand. Hello, I feel you, you're upset about something. Can you tell me what it is about? And then the inner child, hopefully, is responsive, and he starts to write back to you with your non-dominant hand. Mm. And that access is the other side of the brain. Then as he starts to talk to you, you begin to ask him, what about this present thing that happened? What is it that reminds you of in the past? And then he tells you, well, it was when... And then however he says, this is how it happened. This is what happened. Mom did this, and I didn't like it. And then you write with your parent hand, you know, what it was that should not have happened. And that, and it's not only that. It's really, he can get at, 
For example, if you're um, hesitant to go to a party and you're invited to it and you've said yes, but he doesn't want to go or you don't want to go and you don't know why, there, starts, there seems to be a pattern here. And so what you want to do is you want to use that kind of like a, that uncomfortable feeling. It's not that you're staying away from unsafe people. It's just that you're uncomfortable being around these people or there's something coming up. Use that to sort of go into what was it that was uncomfortable? Why were you put into an uncomfortable place? Those kinds of things. He'll start telling you uh, what happened in detail, things that you don't remember. Things that are really things that are shocking. I did this work. It was absolutely shocking. With your own self, personally. Yes, yes, yes. I did this work with Amanda Curtin. It, our group took four years. Some are sicker than others, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but we have uh, we did dialoguing throughout the whole thing, and that's really I think the people who dialogue throughout. And we have there's many different. There not many, but there are three stages or phases of this group within the group. We do experientials, which means that the group reenacts a scene from childhood. And you can pick out of 16 experientials how you want to approach the scene that really needs to be revisited. Some people choose to do a trial. Some people choose to do a rescue scene. Um, some people decide to write a letter. There's uh, throwing um, plates against the wall. There's all kinds of things that try to get at the emotion of the situation from back then and then work on it through that and seeing that you have seven witnesses, eight witnesses to what happened and then they all talk to mom and dad as well. They're absolutely there for you. And so you have this amazing situation where People are talking about what happened to you, and you're the focus. And that's the experiential part of it. The dialoguing goes throughout because this inner child is reacting to people in the group because the group gets closer, and now all of a sudden we have intimacy. People are too close. I don't like that one over there. I don't like the way he looks at me, or I don't like the way she she comes late to group all the time. Why is she even in the group if she doesn't want to come? All this stuff starts popping up, and that's where we, it becomes the laboratory where you start saying, okay, this is a trigger, so we're going to stop, and we're going to what's called bump work, um, and you really look at where what does this behavior and somebody else remind you of in the past, and so that you're seeing actually where it goes, how you're triggered in the present, but yet you're actually, it's actually coming up from the past. Anytime you're more than annoyed is really what we say it's, you're triggered. And it could be you feel extremely self-righteous. I, you know, I should, you know, I'm better than these people or you're shut down. Sometimes you shut down. Sometimes you're feeling super angry. I just... It, and if, is feeling aroused and shamed at the same time clearly fall under the category of triggered? It is, yes. It, you're... Because your body is really what houses all of that, all those memories. It's really the, the you're, it's showing you, your body is showing you something. It's telling you something. There's information there. And so, yes, being, I think that your, that your, that your awareness of it is, is getting you deeper and deeper into what is this about? And I know that you'll find it. Well, I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said it's about being seen. And when I did the episode with, with uh, Jessica Zucker, Dr. Zucker, uh, a while back, 
you know, that's what she said. And that was a that was a breakthrough for me. And I think I think that that's I was as I was talking to Lynn yesterday, I was trying to imagine what it what it is that the little kid in me gets from having these conversations and why it's so triggering. And I and I said to her, I feel like when I'm around a, a woman who kind of fills that that mother role for me, but if in a good way, the mother that I always wanted, I feel like when I talk about what happened to me, I feel like I'm taking her hand, we're getting into a time machine, we're going back to those three or four instances where something happened and she's witnessing what happened and but she's on my side mm-hmm. and she's protecting yes. me mm-hmm. and but she's also seeing me at my absolute most vulnerable when I'm naked when I'm in a confused state of you know feeling a hundred different things as as that little kid and so I think that is what's yeah. triggering to me is because it's so for lack of a, a better word naked it's uh-huh. it's the very thing that i've buried the deepest in my entire life is there and somebody is standing there but they're giving me all the feelings that i always wanted yep yep and you're yeah and that experience of being lovable even when somebody sees you which is not what you had you couldn't be yourself and be loved. So it's normal for that to express itself in sexual yes. excitement. Yes. In fact, the therapist in, in, in the model that I or in, in, a group, in the group therapy, I'm modeling the good mother. I mean, there is that piece to it that's really true, is I'm modeling what is supposed to happen when you're, when you're and, and that happens, that transference, that projection, that stuff happens, that people will finally f- be seen by me. And why didn't my mother see me? And some, the reaction can be very different. Some of them hook on, right? And that makes perfect sense. But the key is to give them a tool, and I hate that word tool, but give them something that's so valuable that they realize, I love me. She loves me, but I know I love me. I'm really lovable. and. That and, and happens I'm, I, over time. I'm moving towards that place. Yes. I'm getting to. I'm getting yeah. to that place. Um, yes. And I think that's why I want to talk about this shame because I know it stands between me and loving myself because it's so hard to love yourself if if you feel that shame, and right. and I know intellectually that I shouldn't feel that shame, but when you feel something in your body, it, it's not intellectual. Right. It's your body is what tells you the truth. That's why when people come to me, they'll say sometimes, I don't remember much. I don't remember anything. Because you're not in their body. Right. They're in their head. Yeah. And I also start to ask them, you know, because really it isn't, memory is the least reliable when it comes to this stuff. It's really your body sensations and your feelings, your behavior your the stuff that's coming out in the present, the ways that you the the, the relationship, the the not having a deeper relationship, though that's the stuff that tells you, hmm, there's something going on because that stuff doesn't just come out of nowhere. The, the the stuff that's coming out of the surveys sometimes there's no connection to the past, 
and they think it's just coming out of nowhere. And that makes sense that we would think that because we don't remember anything happening. But it's so obvious. So dialoguing sometimes can get to the place where you start hearing or like you did. And and, and you You were finally ready. You were at the point where you were ready. And what's interesting to me is to watch you do the podcasts and as if you are readying yourself for healing in a way that's just, it's it's like, you know how you see a bird and it's making a nest and it doesn't know why it's making a Mm -hmm. nest, but it's frantically making a nest. That's what we do. So much of what we do is unconscious in the sense of I'm, and we move toward healing if we can get to those places where we, and there is a sense of risk that we have to take. We have to walk into a therapist's office. It's, it's, and that is a risk. And then we have to get vulnerable, not only walking to the, I mean, then we had to go, those are the things that, it's, it's life-saving, it's life-changing. Oh, you know what that sound means? Time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. Our sponsor is Onnit. Onnit.com is a website where you can find anything health-related that you want. You can find food, supplements, exercise equipment, uh, and uh, a lot more. And uh, they sent me a package of stuff a couple of weeks ago, and one of my favorite things in it, two favorite things in it, is their Hemp Force Choco Maca Protein Powder. And... uh, I literally had it every morning until I ran out, and now I've been buying it um, myself through their website. And it is so freaking good. It is, uh, I like how I'm not saying fuck because I'm talking about a sponsor. Um, It is so good. It is so chocolatey. And uh, I love putting some of their, they have this trilogy uh, nut butter. It's cashew, almond, and walnut. I put a little of that in there, a little bit of coconut water. It is so good. It gets me, gets me, up and going and out to my life so I can stare at a wall and watch the world pass me by, but with a lot more energy. It's pretty sweet. Anyway, I really recommend that you get it. And please, if you're going to go to the website and shop, um, do it at onnit.com slash happy hour. And uh, that way they'll know that you guys are um, doing it because you're listeners of mine. And that will hopefully influence them to uh, advertise more with the show. Again, it's onnit.com slash happy hour. And onnit is spelled O-N-N-I-T. And uh, all kinds of all kinds of good stuff there. Um, way more than I could list. So check it out. I love their stuff. Is the unresolved stuff. That's the unfinished business. So you've got her and as far as her willingness is today, you get to express what it is that you need. But there's also a place where you have to parent this little boy because the outside... So I just have to make sure I do both. What, yes, because... Okay. Where where was all this shit when I was at therapy on Monday? <laughs> all <laughs> when, of these issues when, came up like on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, nothing happens for... <laughs> yeah. Everything happens for a reason, right? But yes, that's... Because when you get to the place where that little boy is integrated where that stuff is coming up and it's getting healed, people on the outside can love you the way they want to, the way they need to, because I love myself enough. And so that my husband can love me in whatever way he wants to. Sometimes it's conditionally, sometimes it's unconditionally. But it it doesn't throw me, you know, into that spin where now I'm miserable because 
I'm questioning whether I deserve something or, you know, this kind of stuff. So right. I'm, I totally get what you're saying is that where is it me and where is it, what can I ask her for? That's like a great partner question. Are you comfortable talking about the things that you buried? Um, I'm not so comfortable talking about my, the stuff that I worked on in my group therapy. Um, not only because of this, but I got you. A one on one. Okay, I'm totally comfortable well, we'll with that. And, we'll get coffee after this. Yes, then. I'd love to. Yeah. I really would, Paul. You're absolutely you're amazing. I have to say, I picked out, I picked out a survey that just that was a reaction to you specifically. And that was really why I picked the survey out because this podcast is helping people. And I don't say that lightly. It's incredible the way that people have re are responding to this from their, from what I'm reading. And it's interesting because you don't, you know, it's almost like you don't really know how people are responding. I suppose you do because you have all the, I get the, such beautiful emails yes. from people. It's, it, you know, on dark days, it, yeah. it absolutely yes. is like, and I don't know if it's healthy or not, just depend on that to bring light <laughs> into my day, but it does. Oh, it I really need it. Does. I need it. I need my clients to want to, you know, sometimes they say really inappropriate praise. You know? yeah. I just like, you know, and I try not to react, but oh, of course. The thing that can be difficult sometimes is people that want more than you can give. Um, for instance, mm. there was a an article that the the Onion AV Club did uh, where they they had me pick my three they have podcasters pick their three favorite episodes of their podcast and of course I made the mistake of reading the comment section they were all nice but one person was like uh, I stopped listening to his podcast because my wife left a message on his Skype number and she tends to talk a little bit and she left three messages and when he replied to her, he said at first he thought that she would he he wasn't going to reply to her because he thought she was crazy. And I, I immediately wanted to defend myself and I didn't post I didn't post it on there because I was like, if I get into replying to every mm. single person that thinks I was a dick to them. But you know, this this person, his wife had left, yes, she left three messages. Each of them were 10 minutes long. Mm. And I listened to all 10 minutes, mm. uh, all 30 wow. minutes of these and responded mm. to this person. But because I said, at first, I thought you were crazy. If I thought this person was certifiably like out of touch with reality, I probably would have stopped listening after uh -huh. a minute or two. Uh -huh. I, I will get emails occasionally from somebody that's like six pages, single space, the government is after me, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I can't, right. I can't read that it just sucks the, the life out of me but there are instances where it it really tests my ability to be compassionate for myself and to put that part of myself away that is terrified that somebody's going to say something bad about me right right and there's two pieces to that two parts to that is that yes there's something about that that falls on fertile ground in you and that's yeah. opportunity for you. That's really opportunity. The second piece is, is that, unfortunately, you haven't had the training that I've had when you can know that they're not, it's not about you. And of course, there's a piece that always feels like, oh, I should have, you know, why did I, why did I say that? But 
the truth is, you, I mean, that's why I feel for you because you don't have that kind of like, oh, yeah, I know, you know, they're responding, you know, it's their world. And it, we're always responding to our perception of what's going on out here. And I even create the perception that I think is happening. You know all that stuff. Yeah. And, I, and I have gotten emails from people that are very negative towards me, and I immediately know, oh, this is their shit. They're filtering yeah. me yeah. through their shit. Yeah. And, and I'm able to, That's, to see yeah. that sometimes with the ones that fall in that gray area um, can be bring that shame up. Bring mm. that, oh, see, you really are yeah. a bad person. Right. The, you you right. just do this podcast for attention. You know, oh, but yeah. but I don't I don't believe that's true. But it comes up in a flicker, and yeah. it's and it's it's not comfortable. <laughs> um, so you, you, one of the things I asked you to do was just go through surveys and pick out surveys that kind of struck a chord with you that you wanted to talk about, and um, right. And I want to do I want to do them service, but some of them I want to make quick comments, and it's really. Um, in relation to the model that I use or to the, the therapy mm -hmm. that I do um, in Cambridge. And the, I won't, let me just go into them. So the first one is Mr. A. And which survey is this from? This is from, shouldn't feel this way. The collector, though, it just says collector because that's okay, the thing shouldn't that collects feel this way. <laughs> shouldn't feel this way. And it's Mr. A and he's male and he's straight. And I grabbed him at the last minute because I thought, oh, oh, I only I have too many females. But I really looked at his second time when I was down at your Pete's Coffee. Um, and I said, wow, there's something really important here. And we just talked about it a little bit is that I'm going to read it. So um, what would you like people to say about at your funeral? And he said he did his best. How does writing that make you feel? It doesn't. And if you had a time machine, how would you use it? You can't change history. You can only observe it. All absolute beginning, the formation of the universe. Just kind of cool. So number four, please write as many of these as you feel like. I'm supposed to feel blank about blank, but I don't. I feel blank. And he wrote, I'm supposed to feel grateful about growing in a non-abusive household, but I don't. I, I feel like I have no valid reason to feel hopeless and suicidal for such a lengthy period of time. I'm supposed to feel emotional about important and meaningful occasions with my loved ones, but I don't. I feel empty. I'm supposed to feel interested about finding a mate, but I don't. I feel terrified and lost. How does it make you feel to write, these, to write your uh, real feelings out? I feel nothing. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes. You are not abnormal, I have to say. This is, you're actually part of the tricky family. I call it the tricky family. And that is the family that looks really good. That's exactly what I was raised in. And I felt exactly like he felt yeah. when I was 24 years old. Yeah. Because my tool was to shut down. Right. Right. And that, and that's, and I think sometimes, and this is just me talking with you. Um, in a relaxed way, I think sometimes the tricky family is the, the most difficult. I agree. Because it's just, because I have people, I told you, I, that come in and they know my father was a drunk and, you know, beat the shit out of me and abused me and my mother. And and I know that in part it wasn't my fault, right? That mm -hmm. That it wasn't, that I didn't, I don't take responsibility. But the tricky family is, this is exactly what he says, is I'm a piece of shit for thinking or feeling hopeless and feeling suicidal. 
absolutely the opposite. This is where we see that memories aren't reliable at all. What is reliable is your body sensations and your feelings, your patterns of behavior, your beliefs, and information about your family. And if you have a therapist that can dig a little deeper into the true story. Um, when you say his memories aren't, do you say? They are the you, least reliable. Least reliable yep. in that they're misremembering or they're not remembering things because their tool was to shut down and not process. Well, I don't know that. That would be okay. uh, uh, what I assume is that there's um, the loyalty to parents from a child is from another world. I. It, it, mm -hmm. I, you rarely see. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Finally, I think they'd stopped asking children to come into the witness stand yeah. because that the loyalty is, well, it's just out of this world. So to start and experience what you experience by taking away um, the belief system and being left with nothing for a time is is that's the risk that's what you're up against so when you say the the memories may not be accurate because they're they tend to be more sugar-coated than remembering them as more dramatic than they were right it's that what okay. we talked about earlier is that the, the 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 power of the mind to not go there to create what you yes. have to survive in right you have to paint it in right. a way a color that right. is survivable and so that everything has to match that crazy dysfunctional system yeah. and so uh, these poor children end up being so twisted and you know of course they're not feeling anything of course he can't feel anything i would say and i think let me just interject uh, how often do you think a highly manipulative parent is involved in that kid that wants to shut down because i feel like that is often the result because the parent a parent who is really good at manipulating will create a reality on the outside that is different than the reality that that child is experiencing in their body. And there becomes a war between their body and their mind. And to shut down or numb out is the only way they can handle it. That was what was the case with me. Right. And I get the feeling that's what is right. the case with people that don't know what they're feeling. Exactly, because what they're up against is the family the, are the family myths and a painful truth that's and that, too hard to that, face. Right, and that manipulating by the parent it doesn't have to be this kind of like you know thinking about what do I say that they'll believe that this they thing probably works. don't even know they're manipulating. Regardless, yes, they probably don't even know. I'm so used to not go, and I don't want to. When I work with clients, we tend to not try and figure out what parents are going through. Right. We really take. We really want to take a window of time and really understand this little boy and what he went through. Because so many times, part of the denial is just saying, you know what, mom and dad didn't have it any better. They had it worse. I'm so lucky. You know, so that's one of the family myths is we're better than everybody else. That's another family myth that can really get lodged in there and so that you can't be vulnerable with other people. And the other camouflage, I think, is having your practical needs met. And thinking that everything must be okay because, you know, I had my college paid for. Mm -hmm. I had – but I grew up in uh, in an environment that was, you know, emotionally um, uh, poverty. There, it was emotional poverty. Right. right. But you can 
if you've never experienced emotional richness, you don't know that you experienced exactly. emotional poverty. And that's why therapy and support groups are so yes. awesome because when you do experience emotional abundance, it's fucking amazing. There was a guy in my support group last night who has 100 days sober and he is just now, now that he's not numb, he's just now beginning to notice all the beauty that has always been around him. And he had tears rolling down his face and we had this awesome hug at the end uh, of the support group where he was it was it was like my my favorite thing in the world is to see the light come on in somebody's eyes when they realize that there is an abundance of beautiful emotion and beauty to be had in the world and it's always been there we've just been too numb to see it because our coping right. mechanisms have blocked us from right. it right yeah. he hasn't lived in his body and he's starting to melt into yeah. his body I mean, there's nothing more terrifying and more beautiful. Yeah, because the pain we feel yeah. is more intense, but the oh, joy we feel yes, is more intense. Exactly. Too. Yeah. It's like, yes, we numb out the bad, but we're also numbing out the good. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you get you get color. <laughs> you get color. And and the and the good thing too is you'll now have tools to process the pain, so it doesn't sit murky and heavy and what feels like it's going to be forever. There's a way to process it. When there's that emotional abundance in our lives, um, so that even the bad, though it you may feel it more intensely, it doesn't seem to linger as much because it at least that's been my experience. Because, and can I ask you? You said because we can process it. Tell me about that. What does it mean to process? Picking it? up the phone, talking to somebody, okay. saying I'm in pain. I want to get drunk. Right. Um, you know, I want to go look at pornography. Um, I, I want to. Uh, Lay down and never wake up. Um, right. Writing, right. journaling, exactly. praying, yep. meditating, right. um, talking to God, saying, I've, I'm so fucking sick of this path you have me on. Why? Why are you doing this to me? I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. That's the way we process. We don't process in isolation. Processing in isolation, yes. But we have to connect. Yeah. Connection. In fact, that's what shame is so horrifying is that it's a fear of disconnection because really life is connection. And I hate to say that like a bumper sticker, but it's so true. I was just thinking the exact same thing this morning. I, I was thinking I wanted I want to there's the happy moment survey on the website and I want that to I would love for the, some of those great moments to go viral. And I was thinking mm. people's perception of what happiness is is so narrow i think when we live in like an eco-based society where everything's about money and and status and power happiness is so often defined in terms of victories and once you get into therapy and support groups and begin to have to heal yourself because you're going to die otherwise you begin to realize happiness is usually defined, at least for me, through a feeling of purpose and meaning mm -hmm. and connection. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's awesome because it's so much easier to find that than it is to find social victory. Yeah. And that's yeah. The, if I get anything through on the podcast to people, I want it to be that, that if you heal this happiness that you think is dependent on you becoming rich or yeah. having finding the perfect spouse is an illusion. It's really about connecting to the person yeah. sitting next to you in a way 
that was inaccessible before because you didn't have the words or the confidence or the vulnerability to describe what it is that you're right. feeling. Right. In fact, that whole society idea of events in your life make you happy, exterior events, is really what the, it's a distraction. It's actually not true at all. Events are the symptom. Events are the result. You don't really even, you can't even seek out a, a, a partner. As you know, we can't even seek out a partner or a spouse. We have to really go inside. We have to go inside. And then as you go inside and do the work that's that's required, then the outside starts to change. There's no outside change without an inside change. And I believe that. Obviously, you can hear that in my voice, but mm -hmm. it's so true. When you know, I have clients who say, you know, well, you know, I really want to get a good job or I really want to get a good partner or, you know, those kinds of things that are so true and so important. But that's not the focus isn't about the hunt. That's the dessert. That's yeah. not the main course. Right. It's the mm -hmm. result of. And so I always say it's the work inside. And that's just so not appetizing when you're somebody who really no. wants to get out of your skin. Yeah. Like, when you I hate love yourself. to hunt things down. Yes. <laughs> you want me to think about the person I hate more? Yeah. What? What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, when you when I I'm, hear right. parenting, you need to self-parent more and you need to reparent. I fucking hate yeah. it. I fucking hate right. it. And you say inner child and my eyes roll I know. and I just want to go, oh, grab yes. a crystal and go fuck yourself. But I got to tell you something. I totally am the last one to want to say inner child, but it works. I cannot, I, I cannot tell you how splitting and really seeing the adult and the inner child, but I get it's so cheesy. And it, to me, it's like God humbling me because I have to walk around and say, inner child, inner child, when, you know, it's already passed. But I have to say, it's so I know true. It's, it I know works. it's true because I feel like an 11-year-old yeah, in, in, exactly. in certain instances. Oh, so yes. I, I, I absolutely yeah. believe it. But And there's, yes, an 11-year-old and then there's the 7-year-old. And then in me, I've got you know, all kinds of teenagers. You know, I've got, you know, I, and you I, have... I just hate that word because it brings up such cliche images of Teenager? the touchy feely. Oh, no, yes, no, no, inner no, child. Inner child. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like I. It's the stuff I. You know. I. I just cringe. But I just wanted to say one more thing about or to Mr. A, and because I don't want to leave without a suggestion, mm -hmm. and it's just a suggestion. Um, he says, what, it, what best describes the environment you were raised in? And I don't know if I need to remind you that he's the one that doesn't feel. He said, family was fine. It was stable and safe. I've been bullied for having a speech impediment since the age of six. No friends and nobody to connect with. Parents not big on talking about emotions. That is, so of course, I've got flags going up all over the place. There. That's stable so, and safe. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So... I would say you need to work on healing the well of pain from childhood so you can live in your body again because you don't you don't live in your body and it's absolutely necessary for you at this moment to not live in your body but that was the past we you really want to walk into the present and you really want to if you're even answering the survey it means that you're willing to move forward so you can't have deep relationships if you live in your head you cannot have a career that is your passion if you cannot live in your body. So those are two things. And I wrote that down, and that's why it sounded like I was reading it. But I really wanted to just say that oh, find somebody to help you start moving into your body. I would 
recommend um, getting a support group because you'll hear what you need to hear. And if you leave your body, can you sublet your body? <laughs> Paul, I'm not taking you seriously. You don't have to throw in that stuff. <laughs> uh, so, you want to go to the next one? Yeah, and I just want to uh, say to to Mr. A, I relate on such a profoundly deep level to what you're experiencing. Um, it's doing that digging, even though it's scary and confusing, it's so worth it because that's exact. He describes exactly how I felt when I was a teenager and in my twenties. I know, I know, Mr. A, that you were set up for this. And you just you just need to I mean I have this belief that something's gonna come something's gonna come to you. There's gonna be an invitation somehow. It won't be probably in an invitation, but something will come to you and there'll be an opening and you'll be able to get somebody to help you. Yeah, there's this weird synchronicity when yeah. we decide to seek yeah. and say, I'm I can't live like this anymore. Right. These opportunities come our way that that convinces me there's something out there. Or inside of us, or whatever. Yeah, just that, just that saying. I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. It's like not having any more opinions. Just, you know, help me. Whatever that, whatever, however that turns out. I, I, um, that stuff inspires me. But I really do. Um, um, I feel for you. Let's the, go to the next one. Leilani, who's a female, she's fifty-one to sixty, and she's straight. Um, this is what she has to say. And which survey is this? Sorry, this is the survey Shame and Secrets. Okay. Um, I remember her, I remember her You survey. probably, you may have answered some of these surveys or at least talked read about them. them or read them, yes. Um, my dad, my dad would put his hands down my younger brother's pants in front of me and fondle him. I don't know if anything happened to me when I was younger. My older sister made me rub my crotch against hers. I was about six years old, and I learned to masturbate from that. That was, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Mm-hmm. That was the answer to that. And she said, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Let me just reassure you. Seeing something like that, you to be sexualized like that, to have such inappropriate behavior modeled by your parent who has the power is such sexual abuse that is a confirmation you you are you don't have to question that at least as far as i'm concerned as a therapist you don't you don't in fact moving on saying yes that's what it was is better and so you say here what are your deepest darkest thoughts not not things you would act on but things you are ashamed to admit you think about that I'm a weird person that no one wants to truly be friends with and that I am just faking being the good person I like to think I am, that I'm lazy and I just use depression as an excuse not to be productive. Leilani, I'll just tell you that this stuff is deep. And it could be, and I'm taking because you're not sitting here with us, um, and I wish you were, because I would like to ask you some more questions about this, but... You know, there's so much here that you need help with because it's it, it can be really difficult to put that those kind of memories that you have in the place that they need to be because that is 
just terrible, terrible boundaries, modeling. I mean, it's it's a it's such a dysfunctional place and to be. And not giving it the weight that it deserves. Oh, you know, just kind yes. of brushing it aside. Right. But even to the even to the place where your unconscious is, you know, trying to heal you by possibly. Um, you say it's an excuse to not be productive, that your depression is sometimes, I mean, I believe that our mind is always looking for healing in the way that it does. And we need to, and I want to always accept the way that the mind so beautifully tries to heal itself, or at least in the way that it maybe avoids things. So I almost sense that you might be depressed because somehow your father probably declared that he was productive in some way or he went to work. And so there's an inner child that actually will see things and say, I will never do anything that my father did. And that might be that he went to work. Mm. So there's absolutely ways that these inner children try and figure out how do I avoid this and never be like that asshole. And it's brilliant. Some of this stuff is brilliant, but it doesn't work in the present. Yeah. It doesn't work for us as adults. What's the what's but, the the, uh, the phrase? My coping mechanisms as a child became my character defects as exactly, an adult. Right, but that you've put it on yourself. You were set up for this. I'll tell you that right away. There's probably some stuff going on if you just were able to crack a little bit of this open and really look at it instead of putting it on you. Yeah, put it on that person who was that model for you. That 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 just use such i mean the the belief system or the the belief system that he established in that house was so off that you're now dealing with it so i believe that you there the idea that you're lazy pull that off yourself and really start doing some it's almost like being a, a spy mm-hmm. it's almost like doing invest being an investigator start being curious about why and look at a picture of yourself from that age that yes. that happened. Yes. And ask and, yourself, would I do that in front of that oh. child? Then why am I making an excuse for this person that did it in front of me? Right. And get angry about what he did. And it doesn't mean you have to confront that no. person. No. It just means that you're taking the blame off of yourself. Right. In fact, one of the things that, you know, when I did this work, I wanted to confront my parents, right? But Amanda really talked to us about that. And the truth is, is that going back to my parents it's like going back to the people that no longer exist and telling them something that they would never be able to respond to in the way that I thought was good enough yes they could even say I'm sorry but it still wouldn't have been good enough it's really so much about me reparenting me and yes eventually I got to the place where I could forgive my parents, but it wasn't a head forgiveness, like, oh, I, you know, that kind of like, oh, I forgive them. It really had to be through my heart, which meant all this work had to be done. I had to hit the bag and swear at them and tell them, talk to the empty chair and tell everybody in my group how excruciating it was to be a fat kid and, and, and feel like, I, you know, that rejection and, and why didn't they help, those kinds of things, that all that stuff was so important in me gaining that ground so that I could really become and start building my own life so that, yes, things like not being able to go to work started to change as I put my adult in place. So that's what I would recommend is just looking at that stuff and start to 
just be like a spy or and I know you need to do it with somebody else, but it is a process, and I think that you're on it. Yeah, be your, allow yourself to be open to the idea that maybe you could give more weight to, to what happened. That was the first crack for me to, to say was, what if I'm the way I remembered things really wasn't right? You know, what if my mom wasn't this great, loving mom what if there was some exploitation in there? Because that's what I, that might explain why I'm feeling dead in my body, why I shut down mm-hmm. around her. So right. to Leilani, I, I would say just a- allow that crack to be open yeah. there that maybe. Yes, I think that she's at a place where, I mean, even just the fact that you're listening to the podcast and answering yeah. the surveys, I have to say that you're looking, you're looking for healing, you're looking yeah. for hope. And I'm, and pull that off of you. Yeah. What's um, the next one? Memory blocker, female, 31 to 40, and she's gay. And this is from which survey? This is from Shame and Secret okay. survey. I remember this one as well. Okay. I was sexually molested from the age of 11 through the age of 15 by my stepbrother. Just typing this out makes me feel so uneasy. I've never told anyone before last week. After a very bad car accident in April, I've been having nightmares that wake me up in the middle of the night from screaming. All the repressed memories of being molested are now all flowing back to me in my sleep. My fiancé and my family have no idea what has happened to me. Listening to your podcasts and this accident have made me realize the repressed memories that I have. Last week, I went to a therapist for the first time since I was a kid. I'm finally getting the tools to be able to deal with these thoughts and feelings. For years, my stepbrother took pictures of me sleeping and held those pictures against me so that I wouldn't tell anyone for proof that I was dirty, damaged, and unlovable. I now realize those were not pictures of me asleep. The molestation was not one incident, but hundreds. In my late teens, I was into a lot of drugs and alcohol and was... and. I'm just now realizing the reasons behind it. I would do ecstasy every day just to be happy and feel loved. Freezing was my only option when these acts were happening, and after listening to some of your guests on the show about the freezing, I have realized that may have been my only option at the time. However, I blame myself for not being able to stop the abuse when it was happening. I have had this shame inside my whole life. I think it's amazing that you realize that your freezing saved, really, I think it saved your life. Again, I'm I'm so in awe of the unconscious for the coping mechanisms that we have to get through this kind of, these kinds of things, these kinds of scenes. The, um, the blame that you put on yourself, however, the, um, that you took on with the responsibility of stopping it, it's the question, of course, is is always for me. Where were your parents? Where were the caregivers? Where were the people who had the power? Because if the, you felt like you had an open channel with your parents, you would go to them absolutely. with something like that. But if there's a feeling that your parents find emotions to be messy and something to avoid, um, what kid is going to go to them with something that's messy where the other sibling is going to get in trouble. And maybe there's a, even a feeling that that 
other sibling is their favorite or whatever, for whatever reason. Maybe you just don't even know how to find the words to describe what happened. And maybe there was a part of uh, your body that got some pleasurable sensation, even though your mind and your soul were freaking out. Mm-hmm. And so then you feel that maybe there's a part of you that deserved it or wanted. It's so complicated. And the thought of going to a parent that is um, finds emotions messy or is manipulative, um, of course you shut down. Right. Yeah. You don't – because the people who have power, if you sense that they can't handle this information about what your stepbrother was doing to you, that was it. There was not going to be any, you, I, I don't, uh, to take the blame or to take, yes, to take the blame off of yourself. One podcast I heard that um, there was a question about sexual abuse by an older sibling. And I wanted to comment about that. Um, even if it's an over, older sibling, it's still on mom and dad. It's still on the caregivers. The siblings model what it is that they see from the the, the, the the power is in the belief system that's in place so that if there's exploitation, that's okay. If okay, if exploitation is okay in that power system, in that in that belief system, then then it's going to come out with with the children. So ages. A, f- a nine-year-old and a four-year-old or a 15-year-old and a seven-year-old. Those are all children, and they are all responding to a belief system that was put in place. So as far as children go, blaming an older child isn't fair. You still have to go to the... the that child cannot drive away. That none of this system, the people in power are the ones that have the full responsibility of the dynamics between the siblings. That is for sure. So that older, younger, it, 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 you can't really extract any blame from that when you're looking at the system. That it was obviously um, in place for. For a reason. I mean, for a reason meaning that those are the people in power were in charge. So I, I heard that in your podcast and I thought, kind of, kind of needs to be taken off even well, the elder, elder you. child. Thank you for sharing that. I've wrote here in my notes, I've just wrote a couple of notes here and I went after listening to your podcast, I thought it's a little like group. It is a little bit like a group the podcast in the sense of people really get a set like uh, like they feel like many of them report that they feel close to you that they don't feel like they're alone and that to me is so valuable for people that's one step closer to connecting mm-hmm. it doesn't the the hope you know they're open i mean really it's so much about suspending those that resistance suspend the resistance for a minute something can come in and change something. It's like those interruptions that you do in the podcast where they're, those are the crazy outbursts. It's like that's the interruption. It's like listening to the podcast and they're passive in the sense of, you know, like almost like um, the support groups mm-hmm. that we go to. It's like you, you kind of sit there and you're passive and you hear and you listen and you take what you need. And that 
makes you less defensive. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I hope that it's a, a, in the way that therapy is a template for learning how to express yourself in relationships outside of therapy. I, I hope that the podcast is a template for people to learn how to talk about what's going on inside them and to overcome the fear of expressing themselves because so many of us have that inherent feeling like I've expressed to you today that I'm I have part of me that I should be ashamed of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. me who preaches this get rid of your shame and here I am with this thing that I'm still feeling shame about mm-hmm. but at least I know that I need to talk about it yeah. and not just sitting mm-hmm What's the next one you got? You already spoke about this one, Paul. His name is Isaac. And I don't know. You said enough. But I also, I just, okay, this is what he says. Uh, Isaac is a male. He's 19 years old and he's straight. Around six months ago, I was in my school's locker room when a jock who I previously never spoke to came out of the showers and out of nowhere jumped me and kept shouting, I'm going to fuck your faggoty ass. And I fought him until I hit his sweet spot and ran in a very faggoty way. He says that about, have you ever been a victim of sexual abuse? So that happened only six months ago. And that was in June, June 8th. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? Not things you would act on, but things you would be ashamed to admit you think about. The jock I mentioned recently killed himself about three weeks ago, and around a week before he did, I verbally abused him, calling him cruel, homophobic names. I think that I killed him. It's because of me and my fucking mouth that he hung himself. And I just want to say again, you're never responsible for someone else's suicide. Ever. Ever. And I just felt really compelled to say that again. Um, and also that bullying happens from people, by people, who are in a lot of pain. And so that's almost why it's difficult to legislate bullying, because it's really it's just a huge cry for, I need help. So, I understand. There was a kid on our block when I was maybe 13, 14 years old. There was a kid on our block that I bullied, even though he could have kicked my ass. Um, And I eventually apologized to him years later, but I was so verbally abusive to this this kid because I was in so much pain. And I couldn't see it at the time um but when he did finally kick my ass one of my larger friends started to step in and i so knew that i deserved an ass kicking that i told my friend no um because i could finally see that i had pushed this kid to the to the breaking point and he needed to get this out of his out of his system and i and i don't think i ever bullied him again after that because i think he had to hit me in the face for me to realize how much pain I was causing him. Mm. You were set up to do that. 
I guess. I guess. And you know what? I was a really sweet kid until I started getting high and feeling like I was falling behind socially and too small for my age and didn't have any friends anymore. And and I became filled with rage. And everybody, I guess what I want, the reason I want to say that is a lot of people that listen to this podcast you know, are like, oh, you're such an empathetic person and you're so, you know, giving and caring and sensitive. And I just want to say, um, while some of those things might be true, everybody has this dark side to them. Everybody has this side to them that where they do things that they're ashamed of, that where they've hurt people um, because they're in pain and they don't know how to express it. And I've forgiven myself for for that. And I've apologized to that guy. And if there's somebody that you've bullied or whatever, and if you can get in touch with that person and apologize, apologize to them. And if you can't, forgive yourself. Forgive yourself for it. Because you were you were in a lot of pain and you were probably a kid or an adolescent that didn't didn't know how to express it. Right. But this guy, Isaac, has nothing to apologize for. No, and I think that there's, you know, it's a lot to do with, I learned this a little bit when I was studying Jung, and I've been recently in a group that studies Carl Jung, and it's, and we're talking about the shadow, and how we repress the shadow, and we we imagine that we don't have a shadow, <laughs> and because And of, nobody else has a shadow. R- or, That's what or, we imagine. Or we project it onto other people, say, mm-hmm. scapegoating, meaning that person has a big shadow, I don't have any, right. and that, so they're the bad guy, right? So however it is that we get rid of the stuff that we can't seem to handle in us, but that Jung would say that we have to accept or recognize the bullying in ourselves the murderer in ourselves, the beggar in ourselves, in order to welcome the beggar on the outside or welcome the... It's, all, it's, it's like knowing that we are potentially everything mm-hmm. and starting from there and not it, it, from this place where, well, I'm better than her. I've got one leg up there. I've got, you know, this, you know, that kind of like trying to inch our way into this mediocrity of, oh, I, I've got a half-assed life here, so I think I'm going to, you know, hunker down really seen, gosh, I'm going to push the limits of this idea out and say, I'm potentially the terrorist. I'm potentially all of that stuff. And start from there with that, living in that heart. And then things look different. Absolutely. Luna, who's a female, and she's 19, year old, and 19 years old, and she's bisexual. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? That even though I am doing well now and am stable and feel good about my life for the most part, that someday in the future, could be next year or in 20 years, I will inevitably have another major depressive episode culminating in a suicide attempt and that unlikely the last one, it will be fatal. It really does feel dark to be pretty sure you know how you're going to die someday. And... She says, and I'm going to kind of just give a little bit more background that you've given us. Is um, she said what describes your family or the environment that you raised in? Pretty dysfunctional. Um, 
Would you be? Would you consider telling a partner or a close friend your fantasies? Yes, I'm very open sexually, and she had talked a little bit about her fantasies. But what I really wanted to focus on was intimacy. Um, she says, "Yes, I'm very open sexually. Maybe too open. I seek out sexual partners that are that are more than one night stands, but less than relationships." Mm. You just nailed a lot of people. That was exactly where we hang if intimacy is our issue. And for these inner children or for these adults that come to me with knowing that their childhood experiences affect them, intimacy is the place that's damaged. It's intimacy. So having a partner or a sexual partner that is more than a one-night stand but less than a relationship is so many of us are in a holding pattern with that. In order to have a deeper relationship, you have to live in your body. So I, assuming that there's probably, it, in order to have that kind of sexual relationship, m most of us have to not live in our body and live in our head. And that sounds a little bit like what you might be struggling with. I'll go on to number 11. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings toward yourself? My parents didn't exactly take care of my emotional needs when I was growing up. I was kind of neglected. So having external people that love me sexually and just in general is really important to me and feels validating. I feel extremely embarrassed about this. I mean, I know it's normal to want to be loved, but I just really get off on it in a way I think might be weird. I also, I also worry that I don't know how to reciprocate, that I need people to love me, but I can't give anything in return because I'm so damaged by depression. The, that your parents didn't take care of your emotional needs, of course, that we need affection. So as we become more in control of our lives, we find affection wherever we can get it. And these inner children look and say, there's affection. That's safe affection. And so it gets very exciting. The buildup is really great. It's exciting. But then after, we've, we always hear the story of after sex, it just feels, you feel so empty. There it is again. It just, it actually starts, or it actually moves into that deep well of pain. It ends up reminding you of the lack of affection. It's, it, it, it's the emptiness after the sex, you think, because the sex wasn't an expression of intimacy, but was used in place of intimacy. Yes, because it's the opposite of what it and this isn't a moral because issue. it looks because we're both naked and we're doing something right. that is we're revealing ourselves physically but we're not really revealing ourselves emotionally wow yeah that that makes a lot of sense yeah it looks vulnerable but it isn't yeah 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 so the emptiness is a feeling being in the misunderstanding of well this it looks like I was going to get affection, but that wasn't affection. Again, it was my expectation 
and I was disappointed. I mean, in a huge way. Empty, feeling empty is, I mean. And, and, and I think mistaking the fact that somebody has given their approval to you physically that you're fuckable oh, means right. that they are mm. affectionate right. towards you. Right. Because it doesn't feel like rejection at, the, at, at first. Yeah. I mean, there there may be, <laughs> for lack of a better word, you know, sometimes there's hate fucking uh, going mm -hmm. on. And yeah. when I think of some mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. sexual, I don't know, conquests, whatever you want to call them, when I was in my early 20s and finally able to get women to go to bed with me, um, there wasn't hate involved there. But there was not affection. It was about power. It was about validation. Um, but I had no interest in what was going on in their head or their souls. And I, I wanted to know what their bodies looked like and felt like. And I wanted to see them let me have that power. I wanted them to give me the keys, as as it were, to explore their body or, you know, what, whatever. That's what I was after. It also is replicating the feeling that she or the the message that her parents gave her that you aren't worthy of feeling. Meaning, we derive our sense of worthiness from the way that our parents react to us because they're our survival. How our parents react to us gives us the sense of we're valuable or we're not valuable. So because she had no, nothing, a kid is a huge, we're, we're just like a big truck full of emotion when we're kids. We're just emotion, emoting all the time. When parents give the message that's not going to happen here. This kid then, okay, something's wrong with me. They don't like it, so something's wrong with me. So that turn off. Yes, their emotions, I got to turn my emotions off. But it's also the way that your parents react to you is the value that you give yourself. So if you're not acceptable, mm -hmm. then there you walk around the earth thinking, you know what, I got to get it where I can because I'm really not up to snuff. Yeah, there's a um, a listener that uh, I corresponded with whose mother would tell her, um, stop crying. Mm -hmm. Stop crying. You know, you cry too much. And what a, what a damaging thing to, to, to tell a kid because then they learn to not trust their body. Right. That's the inner cue we talked about. Yeah. yeah. She started cutting when she was 13, oh, 14 years old because right. she didn't... She got to find a way to let her pain out right. that mom can't see right. or... I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I just often think of the the parents that find emotions messy. And unfortunately, because we're adults, we think that kids think like adults. But the truth is, is that we have so much research that shows that children think so differently. What They think that what happens in the other room is their responsibility or their fault. Mm -hmm. pa parents leave the family. They get a divorce. We've heard that all along. That yeah. you know, who gets through that without thinking, as if you're a kid, that some what's wrong with me. 
It's very different thinking than adults thinking. You almost have to, that's why the dialoguing can be so um, awakening for people is to really see how concrete these children think. And you have to speak to them concretely. You can't just say, oh, um, you know, my husband's name is Billy. Oh, Billy loves us. I want, he, my inner child wants to see, okay, give me proof. What's the mm-hmm. evidence? Yeah. What's the evidence that he's different than whoever I'm projecting onto him? Mom and, and, and sometimes you're unlucky enough to get a parent like my mom who would blame her unhappiness on us, would verbally oh. say, yeah. you know. That's another thing. When she th- was yeah. crying, was you selfish, rotten bastards, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave you all. I'm so sick of you. That's a that's a common family myth of it's you you're the reason why I'm miserable. What do you do then? What do you do with that? And you and you are powerless. It's just such a setup. You got another one? Or is Again, that this isn't one? about bashing mom and dad. It's no, really it's not. About, mm-hmm. um, it's about having compassion for yourself because you didn't. You didn't learn how to express yourself. This is about your podcast. I really enjoyed when you said that taking meds gives you the chance to feel normal. I took Paxil for a bit in my mid-20s, and I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you who this is. This is Large Shoes. And what survey is it? Large Shoes from, shouldn't feel this way. Mm -hmm. Large Shoes, male, um, 30 to 39, and gay. So again, I took Paxil for a bit in my mid-20s and stopped taking because I thought I felt better without it. Then in my, twi- my late 20s, my or job loss and divorce hit. I've been in a funk for the last five years. Looking back, I didn't feel like meds would help me. I'm going to give them and a therapy a chance. Thank you. One of my favorite emails to read. Oh, that is just... It is just... <laughs> that is out of the park, Paul. That is just... That's great. That's great. They, yeah, you you do need to read that one. And there's a lot of this stuff. Amanda developed a, what was called a Childhood Bill of Rights, and I want to read it. It's, a, it's kind of, it's not that long, but I want to read it in response to this survey. And it's her name is Fortuna. She's female, 21 to 30, and she's bisexual. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? That nothing means anything and we're all just slabs of slowly rotting meat floating on a rock in the middle of dark nothingness. I remember this one. How can you not remember this one? (laughs) I try really hard to find meaning in all the bad things in my life and in the world, but I often think it's meaningless, which scares me. And it says here, what are your deepest, darkest secrets? I dropped out of university I've been unemployed for three years. I broke off my engagement. I'm moving back in with my parents, who live in a religious, conservative small town, because I have no money, increasing debt, and nowhere to go. What's worse, I'm the smart girl who who was supposed to do great things with my life. Added to this is guilt, because I live in a first-world country, and I'm not going to die of malaria anytime soon. So I feel like I should be happy and grateful. And I'm... I'm... Paul and I are both smiling because it's just a, I think, for me, comparing yourself to developing countries, mm, it's like you're, 
it's like ask, it's like your mom and dad saying we had it bad, we had it worse than you, so you should feel lucky, which is a family myth that can get so ingrained in you that that these things are telling you something. And I'm going to go right down to what was your environment that you were raised in? Dif- pretty dysfunctional. I feel like I ra- like I raised my parents. I had no guidance or direction, so I'm constantly lagging behind other people my age who had basic life stuff explained to them as a child, and you know it. That is what I totally believe you, and to know that, that you missed out on basic stuff. And I'm going to give you what what we call um, a childhood bill of rights. And just before you read that, I want to say to to Fortuna, um, Mm -hmm. I feel so much compassion for you, and I hope that you can get to a place where you feel compassion for for yourself because it sounds like you were raised in emotional poverty. And the reason I remember her survey was where she talked where slabs of meat. And I've felt that, and I've thought that before. And um, I see so much of myself in almost every single person that that fills these out. And that's, in, in many ways, so life-affirming yeah. to know that while our circumstances may be different from the next person, what we feel inside is so common, so completely common. And that connects us all. So go ahead. You were going to read. Yes, and I want to ditto that because sometimes I, I want to get to the solution too soon, and I really want to just empathize with that and, and, and know that I get why she's scared of that feeling because it's just darkness. Meaninglessness is darkness. Sometimes I hear things like we're on this earth to create, to find the meaning. And now that can be really difficult when you're up against a set of, when you have no really basic tools that were supposed to be given to you. It's just like, what do you go learn that. from? Yeah, you're not going to learn that in a vacuum. Or you, you, learn st- it or you ha- yeah. You got to learn it from somebody, and if it wasn't there in your family, or you're constantly studying and observing the things outside of you because it's not going to come naturally for you. So you're hyper vigilant about how people are picking up their fork, and they're not. I mean, and that's a, that's. I don't mean to make it small, but how people are interacting, and you're conjuring up the way that it's just, it's it's so hard, and so the childhood bill of rights, and this is a child has the right, number one, to be safe, two, to have parents who are resources in a one-way relationship that's focused on the child. A child has a right to be able to witness emotions being expressed in a healthy way by parents. A child has a right to have the family to be safe enough, to fa- the family to be a safe enough place for the child to express emotions and then to experience validation of those emotions by the parents. A child has the right to have her her or her basic needs met. A child has a right to witness healthy adult behavior and a parental relationship that is intimate and and a partnership. Also to experience healthy limit setting for the child's good by the parents. Also to experience life as usually fun and to be encouraged to explore the world in small steps. And 
there's a couple more, but I really want it just because when you when when you're in a place and similar to you, Paul, when you're in a place where that whole bottom the, it just bottoms out with what it was that you were given, to know what it was that we was supposed to be given is part of the grieving process. Oh, that's an understatement. <laughs> So that when you hear, oh, my God, I was supposed to have somebody focus on me and me not supposed to know their stuff as the parent. So many times it gets so twisted in your situation. Parents tell children their worries or their... the, the Problems bo- with their marriage. Right, very inappropriate boundaries. And so to n- just to not have those modeled for you clearly... Uh, I love what what she wrote, by the way. And my only thought is, is that I'm thinking about the single parent who's hearing this and thinking, am I failing my child because I'm a single parent? And I don't want them to think. I could take the S off of parents and parent, okay. really, because okay. that's and, you know, it's it, it's so much about just it, it's a per the person who is in charge. And that there's love. Yeah. And there is so much more, but that's the person that we're talking about. That there's, the, sorry, the, the, that's part of it. That's okay. actually the part of the, um, the child's needs. But the, yes, it's the person who's in charge. Yeah. That's, Single parents that's are. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Um, I, my thought was as you were reading that is they should read that on the first day of school in first grade. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, to have. Yeah, and and to the adults. Yeah. Sometimes adults just oh that's what I'm supposed to do. Oh, I can do that. Or the it's almost yeah. like you because if really, they didn't learn yeah, it, how are they right, supposed to know? Right. It's like there's willingness sometimes. It's just not given that structure from, you know, a guide. You know, I think we all need to have like an advisory team, you know, in all of our lives. Absolutely. And that's a hard thing to admit because we think that means failure, that we think that means weakness. But isn't asking for reinforcements uh, a sign of intelligence and strength? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, how good is a general if he has 10 soldiers and, you know, he's up against a thousand and he says, you know, a weak, a weak guy would ask for other people to come in and help. No, yeah, it's asking for help that really shows your wisdom. You know, it's so that, scary when you've never yeah, done it. Yeah. But I've yet I've yet to have a person write to me or I've yet to meet anybody who went to therapy and was like that made things worse for me. I've never I've never heard of it. They may have come across a therapist that they didn't care for. But I've never seen anybody's lives made worse by asking for help. And now I'm sure somebody's going to email me and go, oh. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking, oh, yeah. <laughs> will you hand me a Kleenex, please? I will. Thank you. Do you have any more surveys? I do, but you tell me what we're doing. Let's do another one. Okay. Um, uh, so it's Janice, female, straight, through 30 to 39. Mm-hmm. Um, she says in her, shouldn't feel this way. What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? 
I'm actually not going to include that. I'm going to go right okay. down. Is that okay? Yeah, if you just want okay. to read excerpts Good. of things, that's okay, fine great. too. I do that sometimes. Great. Please write as many of these as you feel like. I'm supposed to feel blank about mm-hmm. blank, but I don't feel it. Um, I'm supposed to feel happy about living, but I don't. I feel like a pillow is being pressed against my face. Not to suffocate me, but just enough to breathe, but feel anxious about suffocating. I'm not sure how else to explain this. I'm supposed to feel excited about moving on, but I don't. I feel like I can't move on because I'm pathetic and too selfish to work on myself so that my loved ones can enjoy me. I'm supposed to feel optimistic about life, but I don't. I feel that the world is a horrible place and there is more bad than good. That is a heavy burden for you to carry. But I have a feeling that this is about the past and that it's being projected onto the present. So I'm going to go down one more question and really try and get at, I'm going to try and get at where is this coming from? It make, so how does it make you feel to write about your real feelings? It makes me feel overwhelmed because the feelings don't go away. I feel like I'm always screaming in my head, so no one can hear me. I don't want them to hear me, but I feel the need to scream. This frustrates me because I can't figure out if the desire to scream is really my desire to be heard. That is raged, rage. Anger that is... Um, rage is re- is anger that's re- been repressed for years and years. And I sense that there's just a lot of repressed anger here that's kind of culminated into this rage. And screaming, of course, is mm-hmm. the way that one of our, like the, the crying we talked about, it's a natural way to get rid of the emotion. Mm-hmm. Screaming is definitely that. I mean, that's what what we do when we hit the bag is we scream. It's such a release. So her natural body wants to get rid of stuff that's been that's in her body, that's unfinished business. And there's stuff coming up now, and it's causing her this anxiety that makes her feel like she's suffocating. The whole thing is all around here, and that is so much to do with rage, is getting that anger out. I would... Um, I would say that, oh, I want to go down one more. And I, I, I just want to tell you that I, I feel for you. I, I know I've heard, you know, I've worked with people who have this feeling, especially that chest tightening, uh, suffocation feeling. And it's so much to do with anger that's been, that's been put there and really pushed down. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes, I think I worry about so many things which have nothing to do with me. I worry about who is being molested, raped, beaten, verbally abused, belittled, bullied, neglected, hated, killed. I worry about what I will do when someone close to me passes away. I'm 33 and I still live with my parents. I spend more time with them than my own friends. I pay them rent so it's not like I couldn't rent on my own, away from them. For some reason, I can't bring myself to leave home. That makes me feel abnormal and pathetic. 
Would you know? Would knowing other people feel the same way? Sorry, yeah. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? No, because the world is horrible, and I cannot feel good about sharing something bad with others. Existing does not entitle us to feel worthy of life. So, this is a deep sense of unworthiness, and of course, people can't live because. When you have that feeling, you can't feel it. Mm-hmm. It's impo- you can't live and feel that kind of feeling. It's like a fish so, trying to feel water. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's just you can't feel it. Meaning, actually, it, you're, it's not tolerable. It's so mm. painful. So you shut down. So she's shut down. So her actually being able to articulate it in a way of I don't know. She says existing does not entitle us to feel worthy of life. That is her feeling of life is connection, and she feels no connection. And so that this is a fear that we are not worthy of connection, and I expect that that's coming from that past, that the... And I'm sorry, I, I need to go right back to where the the worry about who is being molested, I forgot to do uh, or read number three. I would observe, if you had a time machine, how would you use it? You can't change history. You can only observe it. She says, I would observe life up until the time I was molested by an older child when I was four or so. I want to remember what it was like to not want to be sexualized and feel guilty about it. Now that I should have read immediately because Mm -hmm. that's really the piece that is turning up all of this anger, rage, wondering if we're even worthy just because we exist of life. So obviously this four-year-old, that little girl, living through that, not probably having any way to process it, of course. It just sounds like it was horrible. And then to be left with the feeling of guilt and fear of disconnection because of the shame is probably what she's up against. It's so important for her to have said that. I don't know if we're we're worthy, if just because you exist, Mm -hmm. you're worthy of life. Because she's really putting her finger on, I'm not connected. And that is what life is. And of course there's a question. So going to that and articulating it is pretty rare. It's not so much that I'm enjoying her articulation of it, but really sensing that her, she's hopefully toying with the idea of going to that really scary place. It's a big decision to risk that. To talk about it. To talk about it. To to open up that can of worms. And it's more than a can of worms. It's just terror. It seems to me that that's what her body is starting to tell her. Mm-hmm. It's pushing itself up. It will eventually surface. Our life is faithful. It won't let us go around, walk around numb all of our life. It will put us in a vice grip so that we finally have to say, I can't do this anymore. Something's I have not to, working. Yeah. Something's not working. And the, that's the beauty of this kind of when we hit the bottom or hit the dark or 
go to those you know, the places where we're broken and we get to that place of, I can't do it anymore. I don't even know if I'm worthy of existing. For her to have put her finger on it and know that's where I need to go, that's, I know that it's a big decision, but And I know else? I've been there, and I bet you yeah. too, you have too. If, yes. you, if you had to get sober, yes. you know what yes. it's like to think, I am just yeah. a fucking I've, waste of space. Right, and there's, yeah. And you're looking around thinking, what's it all about? My best thinking, well, eventually I realized my best thinking got me here, but what's it all about? Yeah. And so getting, you know, being in that dark, dark place and just telling her and telling, telling her that if you decide to walk through this, and I'm hoping that you do, that there will be something that comes to you that will help you. Something will show up. If you just say yes to whatever is coming to you, you don't have to hunt it down. You don't have, you, you have to kind of get off your couch, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you don't have to, this isn't, you don't have to be somebody clever. will know. Yeah. Somebody who's just like me, who has done the work, done the therapy, not finished, obviously, but done the work and then wants to share it and has some key that will unlock something. And that connection will start to happen, and you'll start to thaw. That stuff is scary, but you don't have any other alternative, really. Really, and so I'm the good news is you'll be able to appreciate it in a way that somebody who's always had it might even take it for granted. Right. right. That's the beauty: yeah. is you get to taste that meal for the right. for the first time. Coming and back from the dead is like no other greatest. thing. It's the greatest. Yeah. It's the greatest. Yeah it's, it, a, yeah. it's a gift of perspective that, you know, I call it a forced gym membership for the soul. <laughs> so true. You know, having to, to yeah. be to a place where you want to die and having to do the work to get out of the place of wanting to die. I, w- I wouldn't want to ever have to go through it again, but I'm so glad I did. Yeah. And I imagine you probably feel the same yes. way. Yes, I uh, yeah. It's like you don't yeah don't want to think of going through it again. But glad that when I was in it, didn't know. Yeah. But somehow I had people in my life who would say, "The next step, it'll get, it'll keep getting better. It'll keep getting better. It sucks right now, but it'll keep getting better." And especially with this work, when you take when you take your coping mechanisms away, when you put down the drink, you put down the drugs and that kind of stuff, and you all of a sudden you're with those feelings, it's scary and it feels awful. But it won't kill you. But it won't kill you. But running from them might. Yes. I don't know why life is like this, but you have to feel your feelings. Feelings mature us. They move us forward. I don't know why. But when you're a kid... You have to feel your feelings. And when you stop them, you actually abort the process of growth. So, so many of us are stuck at three years old, four, 15, because there's just that place where we think, I can't afford to feel the feelings I'm feeling. Nobody is accepting it. And I don't want to look weird here. Mm-hmm. And so then we stop. Yeah. We stop. And it can be for so many reasons. But um, I just want to. Th- you know, thank her and thank you for you know, all this stuff coming to the surface. Okay. Well, Susan, thank you so much for you, um, coming and being a part of the podcast. I really appreciate it. and and uh, helping me um, sort through some of my my personal stuff. 
I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys got as much out of that as I did. It um, really, really enjoyed talking to her, and uh, she really helped me with some stuff. And I hope she uh, she did for you guys as well. Um, as I said, today's show was pretty long, and since we had the surveys included um, in my uh, interview with her, I'm going to just take it out with one interview, but uh, before I, or not one interview, one uh, survey, a happy moment survey, but uh, before I do, want to give you my usual blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a couple of different ways to support the site. If you feel so inclined, you can support us uh, financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making a one-time donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly PayPal donation for as little as five bucks a month. It uh, may not mean much to you, five bucks a month, but it uh, it adds up and means the world to me. You can support us also by shopping through our Amazon search portal. It's on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Just make sure your ad blocker isn't uh, isn't uh your pop-up locker isn't enabled because otherwise it won't show up. And uh, you can support us non-financially by spreading the word through Tumblr, Reddit, Facebook, uh, all the other all the other places. Um, what else did I want to mention? Um, oh, you know, uh, just a, a little tip that I, I discovered in the last couple of weeks is when I'm dealing with somebody who I expect adult responses out of, for instance... Um, from my mom, even though I haven't talked to her in a year and a half, I, I've decided that I'm going to start picturing them as little children, and that way I don't get drawn into thinking that I'm going to get an adult response out of them. And then it, it I don't know, it just seems to chill me out when I can see people um, that are acting like children as children. It's Life would be so much easier to navigate if our bodies didn't mature, if we didn't mature emotionally, so that our bodies were a physical reflection of what state we were emotionally. Plus, I would enjoy because I get to do high school over. I am going to take it out now with a, uh, this is from the Happy Moment survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Moondog. And uh, his happy moment is holding my dad's finger as we walked around town. I was probably four or five, and he was so impossibly big, and I was so impossibly small. But when I wrapped my tiny hand around his finger, I felt safe. My daughter now does this to me. And I can't help but be amazed at how life repeats itself. Laying in bed on a Sunday afternoon with my wife and daughter, watching my wife's crappy Bravo TV shows, but not even caring that every scene makes me a little dumber because I am with them and exactly where I am supposed to be. Thank you for that. And thank you guys for listening and uh, being with me on this cool, uh, this cool path. This cool little community we got going. It uh, means the world to me. And uh, I love it. I love it. And if you're out there and you're feeling hopeless, don't don't give up. There's There's always hope. You are not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.